this saying I can't talk English. Nobody can understand me. I'm talking broad English and these folk abroad can't understand what I'm saying. What you just heard there is Scots. Even though it's not completely foreign to the ears of an English speaker, Scots is its own language. Some people accuse Scots of being a dialect of English. But the truth is that Scots and English are sister languages. Scots has had a difficult history because of colonialism and linguistic domination by English speakers to the point that it is a language that is often negated by its own speakers and derided and looked down upon by many in the UK. The question is why? With such a rich literary history, Sir Walter Scott, Robert Burns, why is Scott seen as bad English? Welcome to the Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. In this podcast, we explore the ins and outs of what makes us uniquely human, language. This first season is all about the evolution of English. We've got a lineup of two superb guests who are both incredibly passionate activists for the Scots language. Len Penny is a Scots poet known for her Scots word of the day on Twitter and for her work to destigmatize mental health. Dr. Michael Dempster is director of the Scots Language Centre and a neuroscientist and artist whose research and creative work explore the untapped potential of Scots. Let's start by delving into the origins of Scots as a language. Scots exists in parallel with English and it, it kind of diverges arguably in the 12th, 13th century from Northern Middle English. Some people argue that in Old English, the uh, Northumbrian dialects of influenced Scots, there's, there's some phonological features that appear to carry over to today. So regardless of that, there's a historical divergence of Scots from English, if they even, they were never codified at that point. They were never a, a united standard form of Old English. So there's a divergence that goes back historically to the, the kind of dawns, and that's why we say Scots and English are sister languages. Scots um, kind of predates Chaucer as a as a language of creative work. So we've got uh, Barber in the thirteen seventy five in the Bruce, which is about thirty years before Chaucer. So as as a language being used for creative works and epic poetry. It's in there pretty early, and in Scotland, Latin and French were abandoned for uh, kind of state usage very early as well. So it's a feature even to this day. We've got parts of our law as in, in Scots, because Scots law is quite a different thing from English law. It's, it's based on the Roman system. So it's in terms of our documentary history, what we have of it, a lot of it's been destroyed over the. Uh, over the centuries in Scotland, but it is a constant feature from the late 14th century through to this day. What happened was is a public written language. Contact with English around about the time of the War of the Three Kingdoms, the Reformation, the 17th century, the influence starts to come in. Part of that's due to the influence of the Bible. Um, in Scotland, the Geneva Bible was chosen as the standard Bible and even lasted beyond the King James Bible as the Bible that was used in Scotland. But there were Bible translations in Scots, so it was more a kind of theological uh, choice rather than a linguistic choice. Like Welsh, the Welsh Bible came in when there was a massive amount of the population were practising their faith 
you know, Welsh. In Scotland, the, the first kind of Scots Bibles came late 19th, early 20th century. So it's less of a kind of influence there. And by about the 18th century, as the public usage of language conformed to an English standard that was based on uh, Southern England, which is significantly, in terms of vocabulary, pre-enlightenment vocabulary, there's a massive difference in terms of phonological differences between cognates and lexicalitums, etc., etc. So at that point, the language of government became quite separate from the language that was being spoken throughout Scotland. And then following that, Scottish Standard English emerged in the 18th, 19th century, and that was that emerged within the universities. So all we get is kind of documentary evidence for that point. And then the 20th, 20th century, we start hearing sounds that are recorded. And choices were made in broadcasting to conform to the Scottish Standard English. So that's largely where we are to this day. It's still media that's made in Scotland. Kind of, it sounds very strange to Scottish ears because everyone is talking properly. They're speaking Scottish Standard English. We talk about English, and I mentioned in the introduction about the idea of people being told that, you know, Scots is being told as being bad English to the youth of Scotland and to people, and they carry that with them. How's your linguistic identity changed from childhood school days to adulthood? This concept of bad English, that, from my experience teaching Scots and speaking about Scots all around Scotland, it's, it's not always the case in every dialect region. There are some exceptionally strong dialect regions, such as Shetland and Northeast. Scots, where people are very clear that what they're speaking is a language that is different from English. My own experience, I come from uh, an area which has virtually no recognition of uh, Scots as a language. Our local 18th century writers, which tend to uh, be quite important for, for these language identities, chose to write in English. That's Tobias Smollett one of the first kind of authors. So my experience is that it's, uh, it was bad English. It was slang. And that's, that's what I was brought upon. That's that's what I met in the education system when, it, when I kind of first encountered it. I don't know if my experience is maybe different from Len's. Uh, it was incredibly hostile to the way we spoke. It was seen as a marker of a lack of intelligence, a social impediment. So for myself... I kind of, I guess around the age of 16, I kind of moved away from Scots linguistic environment and St Andrews and then uh, moved on to England. And for myself, it was less a challenge of stereotyped uh, prejudice against my language once it was outside the Scots speaking environment. It was more an issue of comprehension. So I worked as a professional speaker in museums and galleries and I was teaching at universities and various things like that. So my linguistic awareness was constructed upon how even the slightest word could lose an audience if I moved into Scots. So a lot of my professional speaking work was about maintaining the attention of an audience. And I returned to Scotland to do my PhD 
um, and auditory neuroscience. And what I found was that the people that we were working with, we went in assuming that there was a monolingualism in English with people. And there absolutely is not. You know, upon returning to Scotland, I found my voice changed back into my eight Scots. This led me on a kind of journey. Obviously, neuroscience were concerned with neurological health, good mental health, some sheer passionately about Lenny. And something that took my interest was primary care, looking at primary care with Scots language. And when I started exploring that, I found the amount of hostility that primary carers were getting carers, nurses, for speaking impolitely to people. And we started looking at using Scots in a kind of care context. And anecdotally, this is well known through the, the wealth of nurses and carers throughout Scotland that using Scots in a care context for a Scots speaker has a massive therapeutic value. And for me, that's what kind of brought me to activism. I, I was thinking, well, this linguistic hierarchy that we've got in Scotland is harming people. And Len, I mean, because you, you're also big into mental health awareness. And some of what Michael touched on there actually is the suppression of Scots as a language, as an identity, as a being almost seen as lower than speaking English. What have your perceptions, what's your experience been uh, with all of this from, from sort of childhood to now? Well, it's difficult because I, I kind of have the the same sort of journey as Michael, but in a slightly different way. In the the house, it was very, very common to speak Scots. My my grandparents lived with us and they were Scots speakers. And as Michael's saying, when my nanny was, uh, she, she took ill with uh, dementia and she was in a care home, the, the sort of the Scots is a therapeutic thing. I completely resonate with that because, you know, you, you find when you're in that sort of situation, trying to relate to people the best you can and the way you relate to people most strongly is with language. So I completely resonate with what you're saying there, Michael. But we moved from sort of just outside Glasgow to uh, the central belt. And because it was an area in which Scots wasn't really spoken, it wasn't really as strongly, you know, recognised there. I tried to iron it out as much as possible. And uh, and then obviously moving to university, again, just further ironing it out. As you say, Michael, for uh, to be understood, to uh, communicate as best you can. And, you know, everyone's got their telephone voice. And I think that that's something that a lot of Scots speakers can identify with because there is a certain extent to which you want to be understood and that's paramount to communication. So you do find yourself softening your glottal stops and and putting the the g's on the end of words where you wouldn't normally do it just to just to be understood um but definitely definitely the the same sort of thing and and as you're saying Richard through my work when I write about mental health it's a very deliberate choice to do so in Scots because the corpus of work the the evidence of what we have as uh, Scots literature has for a long time been dominated primarily by men and also about women or about love or about things that aren't really the sort of the rough topics, the gritty topics, the topics that might resonate with a modern speaker. So I try and introduce things into my work that people might not be used to hearing from a Scots speaking perspective. So that's women's rights, trans rights, 
mental health issues, things like that, that I feel will resonate with people because these aren't thoughts, these aren't topics that Scots speakers don't think about. These aren't topics that Scots speakers don't engage with. These are just topics that Scots speakers might struggle to find pre-existing literature about. You know, if you want to read about women's issues, you might want to look at poetry, you might want to look at books. There's a wealth of stuff that exists in every other language. But because Scots has been minoritised to the point that it's so difficult to produce and publish literature in the language without getting derided, without getting mocked, without even getting you know barriers put in place. There's just not the stuff there. So that's what I do, as you said, to try and to try and talk about mental health and stuff like that through Scots is very important to me because I want to make sure that um, we can sort of break this cycle where Scots is spoken. If Scots can be spoken and can be respected alongside English, and so it's not a sort of competition. So it's not a, you know, Scots v English thing. So it can genuinely be, oh, we want to study a book on mental health and it just so happens to be in Scots, which is a language that we can, you know, do some research into. Because now when I'm working with schools, I do I do quite frequently, the demand is there. The the wins, if you if you get them early enough they they don't have this prejudice they don't have this cringe they don't have this desire to other scots in a way that that would preclude them from learning it they're just so excited to be able to understand new words and and that's why it's so good that you know michael does the work that he does and that people are respecting the stuff that i i do and because the demand is there you know then what do you think so moving from you know the old days of old of scots and modern day Scots, where do you see the most threats? What factors do you think most threaten the Scots language today? That is an interesting question um, for many reasons because when you think of a language, you tend to think of it as existing and always existing and always will existing. But as with any language, it will evolve and change and grow and we have to acknowledge and adapt to fit that. And that can mean coining new words. I don't know if you're aware of the the new uh, Firefox browser that was recently created by Ashley Douglas and Tam Clark, but they, they coined a load of new words for it, like fankle fixing for troubleshooting. I know that was the topic of derision. I covered a lot of those words uh, in the word of the day, and people took massive issue with that because they were like, well, you're just making up new words. But you have to acknowledge the fact that if you are to view Scots as it rightfully is a separate language, then you have to acknowledge the fact that there will be new words coined, as there are with English every single day. I mean, Merriam-Webster releases a list of words every year that have been coined, and they are added to the corpus, they're added to the language, and no one bats an eyelid. But when it's Scots, we have to only use the words that have existed for hundreds of years, or it's not true Scots. But also, I feel like a a danger to the Scots language um, that you can't overlook is the fact that it is not just a minority language, it's a minoritised language and that there have been external pressures on Scots throughout many, many years to try and eradicate it. And we see this now, um, and it's easier for people to say it's Scots v English, but it's not in any way. The majority of the pressures that exist to eradicate Scots come from Scottish people who have a vested interest in uh, suppressing the language or eradicating it entirely. And I would say that one of the pressures that Scots faces is the fact that we can never really define it without mention in English somewhere in it. It's never just Scots, a language. It has to be Scots. Here's how it relates to to English. And I feel like with any topic, if you can only empathise with the struggle based on your direct relation to it, 
then you've already lost half the battle. You should be able to put yourself in the shoes of a Scots speaker, acknowledge the fact that the language they speak is being constantly derided, is being constantly tried, you know, the amount of hate that I received does not exist in a vacuum. It doesn't happen just because I'm an inherently unlikable person. It happens because the work that I'm doing is a very public rebellion against this minoritization. It's, it's, this is why more than ever, the community needs to come together and stop sort of squabbling over things like standardized orthography and, you know, and whose dialect is best and, and what's what should be the best way of, of transcribing this word. And we should just tease each other up because I don't really care how somebody spells a word as long as they acknowledge that that word is part of a legitimate language. I think Scots isn't did yet, right? I think the concept that it's a dying language has been part of the literature for 400 years. It's alive, it's well, it's... Um, Threats that are minor, I think what we've got is we've got under-resourced teaching materials in Scots. One of the main things that people talk to me about for children is there are no children's toys with Scottish accents that speak Scots. There are virtually no children's programme. But that has a later influence. People are learning their first language at home. I think what we need to ensure Scots' vibrancy is to allow Scots to be spoken in public, to be used in public fora without getting this assault that we all get online. Now, one thing both of you have mentioned uh, and picking up on is this division of where Scots ends and Scottish English begins uh, for people in Scotland. Is there a line in the sand uh, that people can truly perceive or is that where the water is totally muddied for people i don't think it's a case of the waters being muddied i just think it's a sort of case of it's a it's a language continuum there's scots on one side there's english on the other and every point on that spectrum should be considered a valid form of communication it doesn't matter if you speak english and throw a handful of scots words in those words are still scots words and you're still a scots speaker for using them i feel like people try and use this as a stick to beat legitimate Scots expression because they say, oh, well, most of that sentence is in English. It's like, okay, do you want me to speak fully in Scots because you won't understand me? Scots speakers constantly have to code switch between Scots and English. And, you know, unfortunately that, that ends in a sort of a mix, a muddle, but you find that in a lot of bilingual children. And I feel like that should be viewed not as a sort of line in the sand to be drawn, but as something that's actually a real linguistic attribute. If you can communicate in two languages, clearly, concisely and eloquently, then you've got another string in your in your bow. Why do you need to draw a line between the two of them? For me, I'm very, 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 very much focused on the spoken language, written form, it's a tool. Now, as a spoken language, as Lenny's saying, we, we exist on this continuum. Some people want you to be broad Scots, just as folk wouldn't you be broad English. But in the whole context of the Scottish linguistic environment, everybody uses the same uh, phonological system, which is a Scots phonological system. There are very few people who speak uh, standard English, no matter what they believe. And at the other end of that pretty poor one-dimensional scale, as the broadest Scots speakers, some people are completely aware that they're speaking something that would be considered a completely different language from English. 
some people aren't and when they go out into the world and I know a lot of people that have done this they've gone out into the world as a confident English speaker and they've come back to Scotland saying I can't talk English they're saying I can't talk English nobody can understand me I'm talking broad English and these folk abroad can't understand what I'm saying so in Scotland we, we're not preparing our children or people to send them out into the world. So I think that that distinction is a useful thing between Scots and English to introduce into education. Let's take a quick break to let you know about the sponsor of this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by the Michel Thomas Method, an accelerated stress-free approach to mastering a new language based on the way the brain prefers to receive, retain and retrieve information. You learn through listening and speaking so that you feel a constant sense of progression and you'll stick to it because you'll love it. Listeners of the Language Podcast get a special 30% discount on the Michel Thomas course of their choice. Just follow the link in the show notes. Now, Michael mentioned that only very few people speak a genuine standard English and it got me thinking about all the quirks of English that exist all over the world phrases that are completely unique to a certain area and sound almost foreign to anybody else. If you've got any interesting sayings, phrases or expressions from your hometown, please share them with me in the comments for this episode on the Language Podcast's YouTube channel. While we're on the topic of standard English, it's interesting to note that there is no official standard orthography of modern Scots. But should there be? With the many different dialects and versions spoken, could standardisation be unifying? I guess I've, I've written uh, two modules for the Open University Scots Language and Culture on standardisation. There is a standard that's there, that's available for us to use in a way that communicates across the dialects. I absolutely don't think that should replace traditional dialect writing. I think that's absolutely there. Our recent project at the Scots Language Centre, Scots Works, especially structured it that way. So we looked at what could function as a standard language, but we had a representative from every single traditional dialect region there. So the conversation we had was, well, how do we standardise this among ourselves? And then what we did for the second part was we used our own traditional dialects to create within. So I used my Western Bartonship dialect with Shetland speakers, Northeast speakers, speakers for people, supporters. So I think that reflects my stance a bit more than, than a kind of standard. I think there is a there is a room for a standard if you want to run a bureaucracy using Scots. If you want to take minutes for a meeting. If you want to express yourself, do it however you want. That's we've we've got brilliant traditions in every dialect and across dialects to innovate. But we only innovate within a tiny, tiny locus. It's only a WH changing the NF. But the grammars are still the same. We've got traditional spellings within English and we've got traditional spellings within Scots. Both have got equal provenance. They go back to Middle English choices reflective of the language. So I think teaching a standard Scots would be useful because that would allow people to access the literature from today back, just as in English. That's my position about the value 
of a standardised Scots. Be advocating that sometimes I might get flung in with folk that say shut up and everybody unify to this thing, which I'm 100% against, I think, for expression, express yourself in your own language. So, Lynn, how do you differ, in your opinion? <laughs> I would say I'm intrigued. That, I know. Uh, the thing is, I, I get a lot of hate for, a, they call it a pan-dialectal approach to Scots, which is where I'll nick a word. If I like a Doric word, I'll nick that word. If I like a Shetland word, I'll nick that word. But at the same time, I'm very careful to maintain my own my own spellings of things my own ways of expressing myself but for me I've always been of the stance that language in and of itself is too prescriptive perhaps it's just because I'm a really bad speller but I've always been quite liberal with the way that I express myself even in English written communication is is just a a means of transcribing the important part of, of language which is the sort of oral aspect and as Scots is predominantly an oral language the call for a standardised orthography confuses me because why is that what we're talking about? And also, who chooses which one is correct? Do we leave Doric out of the conversation? Of, of course, I mean, obviously, Michael, <laughs> I would agree that mine is the best way, but... Um, yeah, yours but, probably is, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that's, that's what I mean. What, what I mean is that it's, it's often used, again, as a stick to beat Scott speakers. This is not Scott speakers having this conversation about, oh, should we spell it this way? Should we spell it this way? This is people out with the community who are saying Scots is not a language because it does not have a standardised orthography. And yet, when you see in languages where a standardised orthography has been implemented, uh, Jamaican Patois, for example, or Gaelic, when a standardised orthography is implemented and imposed upon a language, it it homogenises it entirely. And you lose the dialectal richness. And that's what the language is about, especially when it's a language like Scots, where it has existed in these isolated pockets of gorgeousness. And you've got words that are said differently, spelled differently, 100 miles apart, 200 miles apart. Because if we lose that, then we get what is essentially a watered down version of what somebody believes Scots to be. When in reality, it's the differences that make it so beautiful. And so for me... I don't believe that standardised orthography is necessary unless, and this is a big caveat, unless you are teaching to people who are coming from a very, very beginning, from a very, very early early age, or you know, if you want to teach to people who are learning it as a as an additional language, you then need some, as as Michael says, some some standardisation. I'm, I'm intrigued to know what you think about the idea of implementing Scots in schools like in the school system so based on what you've both said about the standardization of scots where do you see scots being taught as a first language in scotland alongside scottish english and gaelic i mean is that something that that can happen in in sort of the way you see the language and how it should or shouldn't be written i mean it keeps me in a job i think that there's even more um there's even more calls for for keeping it dialectically rich because i want to read narratives from Shetland I want to read narratives from the northeast I want Doric poetry I I mean I was part of a I was part of a project where it was poets from all across Scotland and it just the the richness and the differentiation and the you know the conversations that were sparked based on the fact that we all have different ways of expressing ourselves was amazing and I feel like when you when you release yourself of the sort of constraints of a prescriptivist language you know, identity, you can you can express yourself so much more clearly and with so much more fluidity in your language. It's amazing. One of the things is Scots is a language of the, the playground. So it's in the schools. 
if you get a row off the teacher, you get it in Scots. If you get if the teacher's joking, it's in Scots. I think what needs to be flipped in, in school is that it's allowed beyond those contexts. Although Scots has quite a contentious relationship with schools, teachers are on all passionate educators and they want to educate their children. So I'm pretty sure that most speakers that I've, uh, most teachers that I've spoken with and worked with who have got an awareness of Scots use it in everyday life. There's a wee bit of fear of being improper by speaking speaking Scots when that. In term, that's in terms of a medium education. So Scots medium education pretty much exists. It's pretty much there. So the need for a, med- a Scots medium school isn't that great. What's needed, is a, uh, in my opinion, is a development of the, the opportunities to study Scots. So at the moment, it can be used cross-curricularly. So generally that falls within drama, Geography, there's some absolute amazing work in geography getting done in Banff High School. Because so much of our language comes from Scots to describe the environment. If you're learning biology, you're pretty much speaking Latin and Greek anyway. You know, that's almost a big access point for me. So it's about learning about the language. And the question is about can you use it in non-creative contexts as a written form of the language? I think absolutely. I've done that. I've written academically in Scots. I'm doing it just now. I'm adhering a wee bit more to a standard than I would in my creative work. In my creative work, I absolutely take Lenny's approach. Now, I know this might be a difficult question to answer, but could you give me some words that you particularly like in Scots that don't exist in English at all? I really like curry as a verb. I think that I mean that's one of the very first words that wanes here. It's, it's certainly from from around my part is where you know you're you'll be greeting you'll be you'll be absolutely you'll be having such a bad day because life's so terrible when you're away and you've skinned your knee, and your mum will come and be oh come away and in Curidon come I mean I'm uh, <laughs> whenever I I go back home and I'm I'm 22 now I'm an adult I'm all the women I'm ever going to be I'm never going to be too old to Curidon my mum and get a wee curry in. And it's just a concept that I hold so close to my heart because it's not a cuddle, it's not a snuggle. It's when you're currying, it's something that's it's safe, it's warm, it's protected. There's there's connotations that for me don't exist in English with any singular word. How about you, Michael? That is genuinely one of my favourite Scots words. And it exists completely differently from English. It's used more like the French for place names. Le Paris becomes the Gorbals, the Renton, the Glasgow Road, Dumbarton Road. It gets used for verbs of motion. I'm going up the stairs. You don't go upstairs. You go up the stairs. You use it to address people, the brother, the more, that kind of thing. It's it's used completely differently, and it's the most used word in Scots. So that's, for me, the non-lexical items of Scots are the most fascinating. And when we talk about sort of English and Scots being sister languages, there are often also concepts or ideas or um, uses of grammar, for example, that you see in a language that you don't see in a sister language, but also in any other language. Uh, have you come across anything like that in Scots that you, you see of just 
Scots and not seen in any of the other Indo-European languages that you've you've looked at. The, I like I like the second person plural in Scots. I think that does what it says in the tin. But I also like the imperative in Scots uh, and the sort of differentiation that you can have between how people interpret it. If I say, "Going to give me some of that," there's uh, there's no malice, there's no anger. I'm not raging at you. I'm just asking for the thing. But if you say, "Going to give me some of that," to a non-Scots speaker, they're going to infer from what you've said that you're being abrupt, rude, abrasive. It's 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 incredible because then you have to sort of you have to iron it out and make sure that you're being very, very polite when you say, go and give me some of that, instead of just how you would normally say it to a Scots speaker. So it's interesting because the imperative in, in, in English is a lot more, could you, would you, will you, please? Whereas in, in Scots, the please is implied. Go and give me some of that. It feels weird for me to say, go and give me some of that, please. Like you don't, but it, it's not impolite to just say, go and give me some of that because it's it's that's how the imperative is used in Scots. So, What's something that you know that always surprises other people when you speak on this topic? For me, I think a really interesting one is that the way that we've been speaking to you just now, Scott Standard English, just came up. It was invented in the 18th, 19th century. The way that I've leathered as a boy and I've leathered every day, like a battered boot is, is a thousand-year provenance. When people get that, when they realise that English spoken with a Scots accent is similar to English spoken with a Spanish accent, people routinely get it. It takes a wee while, but it totally blows their mind. For me, I'd say there's two things really. One, it's not it's Scots isn't Gaelic. Um, they're different languages because I get a lot of a lot of American viewers who are just enamoured with the fact they can now understand Gaelic, and I'm like, I'm sorry, hen, no. But the second thing is that you don't have to be white to be a Scots speaker. You don't have to be born in Scotland to be a Scots speaker. You don't have to have learnt Scots at your nanny's knee to be a Scots speaker. It's a learnable, teachable language, and if you want to be part of the community, the only prerequisite is a desire, a passion, and a respect for the pre-existing speakers and the pre-existing language. I get a lot of comments saying things like, um, I wish I could learn Scots or, oh, I wish I wish I could be part of this. And I'm like, you can. Come on, come on, be in. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. What piece of information do you most enjoy sharing about Scots? I, I love it all. I mean, I've just, I've just celebrated the 500th Scots word of the day. And... Um, Every single one has been an absolute pleasure and there's nothing I love more than sharing it because it's it's not just a it's not just a sharing thing. I'm I'm also learning a lot of words myself and I feel like that's how you should approach any kind of learning is is not just here I am in a position of, of knowledge trying to talk to you. It should be look what we can learn together. Um so one thing I love sharing with people is the fact that, you know, I'll I'll be learning the Scots language the day I die, like I'm, I'm not a voice of authority. I'm not an expert. I'm just a really, really, really invested language nerd who is just loving this experience. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I like sharing with people. <laughs> Passion. Passion's always in you know, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think I think for me it's it's like there's so much uh, once, once your eyes are open to what Scott says. There's just that much. It's difficult to pick one. But for me, I think... And that, this is audience-based. So for me, and it's not to the exclusion of the people that I'm not speaking to, but when I can say to someone, and 
this has happened a million times over well, thousands of times, that see that way you're talking, see the words that you get around for. That's a language and you should be proud of it. If there's one key thing that you want everyone to take away from what we've discussed today, what would that be? The one key thing is that the the first language of Scots speakers is a language that demands dignity as every other language does. And through that dignity, it's, you should be allowed to explore it in a safe place yourself. The time has now come for conversations about Scots to be in complete isolation from English. We know it's a sister language. We know there's related words. We know there's mutual intelligibility and cognates. But at the end of the day, we don't have to view Scots through the prism of English. We can just look upon it as what it is, which is a legitimate method of communication, which is used by many, many, many people in Scotland and around the world. Um, so, yeah, I would say that Scots is a language. And if you don't agree with that, then you are more than welcome to be wrong. But <laughs> if, if you were right, we would agree with you. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you both very, very much for joining me and uh, for sharing your experience and your passion about Scots language. I'm definitely a Scots fan. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. I'd love to know if you've got any interesting English sayings, phrases or expressions that are completely unique to where you're from. Let me know by sharing your thoughts in the comments. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a like and hit the subscribe button. If you want to know more about Scots, follow Len's Scots Word of the Day on Twitter and check out Michael's website, mainyourlanguage.com. Did you know too that the Chambers Dictionary, the UK's number one selling hardback dictionary, is famous for its Scottish heritage? The latest edition has a special section devoted to Scotticisms. You can check it out in our show notes. And we'd like to thank Chambers for sharing it with our listeners. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the various Englishes of the world, how the English language is changing and why it is so adaptable with Michael McCarthy. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.